0: This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours. Babes in the Woods is not the only shocking tale from Vancouver's most famous park. On Forbidden Vancouver's Dark Secrets of Stanley Park tour, you'll hear stories of buried treasure, the truth about Dead Man's Island, and the notorious case of the Stanley Park Prowlers. Forbidden Vancouver's had over 1,500 five-star reviews on TripAdvisor, and are winners of the prestigious City of Vancouver Heritage Medal of Honour. Find out more and book tickets at ForbiddenVancouver.com and you can save 15% on your booking using the code COLDCASE. I'm Eve Lazarus and this is episode 12 of Cold Case Canada. This tells the story of the two skeletons that were found in Vancouver's Stanley Park in 1953. Cold Case Canada is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus, a reporter and author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. Just to set the scene a little, Stanley Park is Vancouver's crown jewel. It's a 1,000 acre rainforest in the middle of the city. It has a seawall around the perimeter and it's filled with flower gardens, walking trails, lagoons, beaches and quite a few dead bodies. Because there's two sides to Stanley Park, the one that the tourists see, and the dark side that's kept hidden by the majestic trees and primitive forest. It's a part of the park where the squatters, homeless, and mentally ill live, where criminal transactions take place, and where lives are ended. Back in the 1940s, when the Babes in the Woods were murdered, Vancouver could be a violent place. Daily newspaper reports told of armed robberies, sexual assaults, suicides, and murder. In May 1945, Olga Horoluck, a 23-year-old waitress, was found beaten to death in English Bay. She'd been killed by a soldier. In July 1946, Gary Billings, 11, was murdered by a soldier and dumped off the bridle path just off Second Beach. And in June 1947, the same year the Children's Miniature Railway that runs through the park was completed, South Vancouver resident Hilda Norma Burton, 27 years old, was found raped and strangled near Lost Lagoon. Two years later, the park witnessed the Lovers Lane Marauderers, a series of brutal beatings and violent rapes by a group of men posing as police officers. The two little boys, known as the Babes in the Woods, were found near Beaver Lake. In the nearby West End and Coal Harbour neighbourhoods, the population has since burgeoned and huge skyscrapers dot the landscape. But the trail where the boys were found, less than 150 metres from the main park drive, and where thousands of cars commute across the landscape Bridge every day, the park still feels remote. In 1953... Albert Amos Tong was working with a Vancouver Parks Board crew clearing dense bush in a remote part of Stanley Park. Tong had been in the area for several weeks as part of a fire hazard reduction program. As Tong was going about his work, he stepped on a lump buried under a bundle of leaves and he heard a loud crack. As he raked away the leaves, he found that the cracking sound had come from a skull and as he carefully lifted away an old coat, he saw what would later be revealed as two tiny human skeletons. Tong had worked for the city of Vancouver for 11 years. On the day that he found the skull and bones, he finished his shift and went home to his Eaton Street house in East Vancouver. He was busy, he said later, and he wanted to think about his discovery. The next morning, he called police. Tong's delay in reporting his grisly find to police, whether he thought that he might have been implicated in some way, or for some entirely different reason, is unknown, but it was just one of the many baffling and often bizarre details that emerged over this still unsolved murder case. Tong's grisly discovery in the woods that winter morning set off a chain of events that would confound the city for the next seven decades. Vancouver Police Sergeant Bud Errington and Police Constable Bill Lindsay were first on the scene. They used their hands to scrape off rotting leaves, mould, hemlock needles, and a couple of years' worth of deciduous leaf layers to unearth what was left of two small children, one slightly smaller than the other. While roots from the trees had grown around and through the bones, they could see that the smaller skeleton lay face down beside a decayed log a leather Air Force-style flying helmet still attached to the tiny skull. Both skeletons had black leather belts encircling what were once their waists, and identical brown Oxford rubber-soled shoes were attached to their feet. The larger skeleton was lying across the feet of the other, and the remains were covered by a woman's coat. There was another flying cap near the right of the body, and what remained of a pair of goggles. An adult woman's brown penny loafer shoe. Lay between the larger skeleton and a rotted log. A child's blue metal lunch box with a white bottom and two handles lay between the bodies. The remnants of that last lunch had degenerated to wet fibrous tissue. Found close by, and soon to take on a prominent role in the case, was a small hatchet with a broken handle of the type commonly used by campers and roofers. Almost immediately, the media dubbed the victims the babes in the woods, and the case quickly took on mythical proportions. It was Vancouver's own Hansel and Gretel fairy tale, a dark edge to the city's beloved Stanley Park, but with an unsatisfying, inconclusive ending. Were the children unwanted and dumped and then murdered by a stranger? Or the theory favoured by investigators, were they unwanted encumbrances lured to the park by their mother and then beaten to death with her hatchet. After the skeletons were discovered, police boxed up the bones, gathered up the clothing and other items found at the scene and took them to the city morgue where they were examined and reassembled by Dr. Harmon, a pathologist, and the coroner, Dr. John Whitbread. Harmon determined that the children were aged between seven and twelve. After a further examination of the holes in the skulls, one in the larger and two in the smaller. He determined that they were not made by rodents or other wild animals, but by the hatchet found at the scene. The blade of the hatchet was about four inches, the cross, and fitted neatly into the fractures. One child had a chop wound that matched the sharp edge of the hatchet, while the other had fracture wounds that might have been caused by the hammer end. And even though the skeletons were wearing boys' outfits, and it was already difficult to determine sex from skeletal remains. The original case file said that one was probably a girl. Somewhere along the way, the probably was dropped, and this mistake sent detectives off on the wrong track for the next 45 years as police searched for a missing brother and sister. With no missing persons reports to help with identification of the bodies, police contracted Erna Engel Beersdorf, a renowned forensic anthropologist. Beersdorf was also a painter and a sculptor, and before she was dispatched to Auschwitz in 1944, she'd worked on the staff of the Natural History Museums in both Budapest and Vienna. Beersdorf survived the atrocities of the concentration camps and shortly after her release moved to Vancouver and began work at the Museum Vancouver. Beersdorf, who was one of the few scientists living in Vancouver and trained in forensic anthropology, was given the broken and decomposed skulls as well as the information from the medical examiner so that she could cast likenesses of the children's faces. While an exact reconstruction was impossible, Beestdorf believed that the children were of a Nordic race, maybe Swedish or Norwegian. From the physical and medical evidence she was given, she concluded that the girl had brown hair, prominent lower jaw, a slender build, and cavities in her teeth. The boy, she thought, was sturdy and had dark brown hair. She told reporters, The skull would show a definite facial outline, chin, jaw, bridge of nose, forehead, cheekbones, The soft parts of the face can vary, things like lips, tips of noses and ears. While the plaster casts were being made, police tried to recreate the clothing worn by the children. The 1953 annual report from the Vancouver Police Department described the process. The bones were carefully gathered as were the roots, leaves, soil and evidence in the immediate area. In the laboratory, the roots were carefully separated and numerous small pieces of clothing recovered. After repeated cleaning, it was possible to state with confidence the clothing worn by the children at the time of death. Police borrowed an outfit like the ones found on the skeletons from a department store. A photo in the annual report Shows a store mannequin the size of a small child wearing a Canadian manufactured red Fraser tartan jacket, beige corduroy pants, brown shoes, and the aviator helmet. The leather aviator caps worn by boys pretending to be World War II pilots were commonplace at the time and sold in stores for $1.59. The boys' shoes sold at Woodward's department store. The woman's coat was a size sixteen and had what was called leg of mutton sleeves. It was a cheap style of coat with a dyed muskrat fur collar, made in nineteen forty-three. From the size of the coat and the woman's shoe, the police found tucked underneath the shoulder of one of the skeletons. Investigators determined that the woman was a short and stocky, five foot three, weighing between hundred and twenty-five and hundred and thirty-five pounds. Detective Don Mackay was appointed to head the investigation team. Now that he had determined the cause of death, Mackay needed to establish an approximate time of death, which he believed would help him find the identities of the two missing children. Detectives looked at the layers of leaves and pine needles that covered the skeletons and determined that death had taken place six years earlier. Discovering that the rubber-soled shoes that the boys wore were available only after the war years, helped to fix the year of death at 1947. After the plaster casts were complete, police circulated photos of the likenesses and the mannequin dressed in reproductions of the clothing the children were thought to have worn to newspapers across the country and asked anyone who had seen a woman with a young boy and girl in Stanley Park in 1947 to come forward. National media coverage of the crime was extensive and tips poured in from all over North America. While more than a hundred people said they remembered seeing a boy and a girl in the park in 1947, Mackay found one report particularly convincing. A West Vancouver woman told him that she and her fiancé, an Air Force pilot, visited Stanley Park in October 1947. She remembered the day clearly because they fought. She told Mackay, and she broke off their engagement. She'd kept a detailed diary of that time period, and her entry on that day included a story about a woman who was walking in the park with two small children wearing a fur coat and carrying a small hatchet. She described what the kids were wearing and she said she remembered the two children with remarkable clarity. The witness who asked her identity remained secret, said the woman she saw in the park that day had dark hair, a fair complexion, and spoke to the children in a soft, low voice, calling the boy either Ronnie or Rodney. The witness and her then fiancé had continued to walk towards Prospect Point, and on their walk back later that afternoon, she said that she saw the woman running from the old zoo cages. This time, the woman had no coat and she was wearing only one shoe. She was also alone. Because of the clothing which she described down to the aviator-style leather caps, the estimation of the date of death, the ages of the children and what Mackay thought was a credible eyewitness account, police focused their murder investigation on October fifth, 1947. Mackay thought the murderer was a woman because of the strength of the blows. In 1953, he told a reporter, They were light blows the belly made a depression in the skull. I believe a man would have struck harder. From the evidence in the eyewitness testimony, Mackay believed that either the children's mother or a guardian had struck the children down from behind, rolled the youngest child between the log and a vine maple, and dragged the oldest child's body across his legs. She then covered their blood-stained bodies with her coat either through remorse or because it was too difficult to bury them in the ground in Mackay's scenario, the woman found her shoe trapped between the oldest child and a log and when she jerked her foot free, the shoe stayed behind as she fled from the murder scene. Mackay suspected that the mother had killed her children and then committed suicide. And murder-suicide was certainly a plausible theory. The years after the Second World War were tough on women who lost decent-paying jobs when veterans returned and more than 20,000 people flooded into Vancouver from all over Canada in search of work. Vancouver was in the throes of a housing shortage and judging by the newspaper headlines, crime was also escalating. Given the housing shortage and lack of a social safety net, women's only option was usually working in badly paid retail or domestic jobs and the long hours and low wages left few options for childcare. The future for women, particularly single mothers, looked bleak. The 1948 annual report for the Vancouver Police Department mentioned a population increase of 22,000 and seven murders, in which three involved mothers and children, in two of which a mother shut herself in a room with a child and committed suicide by gas, the other being where a mother threw her two children off a bridge and then jumped off herself. Tips flooded in from members of the public who remembered someone with children of those ages in 1947, and whose present whereabouts were unknown. Mackay checked everyone. He traced 76 pairs of children who are unaccounted for in Western Canada, finding some as far away as Scotland and Australia. Mackay worked almost exclusively on the Babes in the Woods case for the next three years. He needed to know why someone would use an axe to murder two children, dump their bodies in Stanley Park, and cover them with a woman's coat. He told a reporter, Well, I suppose you could pretty well say I was obsessed by it. I had two children about those ages at the same time, so I guess it kind of got to me. While Mackay searched through missing persons records, police contacted local school boards to find out if a boy and a girl, probably brother and sister, had failed to return to school around 1947. Social agencies were also asked to check their records for any children of similar ages who may have been on their caseloads at that time. Police checked out every lead, personally setting eyes on each child and ensuring their safety. Mackay devoted himself to the case. He compiled birth records, talked with school boards and consulted other police departments. One tip led to a girl and a boy who couldn't be found. Mackay zeroed in on Madeleine Fortier, a French-Canadian from Levi, a small town in Quebec. Fortier was at one time the mother of a boy and a girl who matched the estimated ages of the babes in the woods. She'd been in Vancouver in the fall of 1947 and told authorities that she had her children adopted out. Mackay desperately wanted to check out this lead, but his superiors would not give him permission to travel to Quebec. Mackay died thinking that he had solved the case. By 1960, police still had no clue as to the identity of the two children or their murderer. Coroner Glenn MacDonald told reporters that no plans had been made to bury the two children because burial would destroy the physical evidence and any hope of ever identifying the children through their medical histories and records. The bones of the children and the artefacts recovered at the scene were stored in three file boxes and left in the basement of Vancouver's coroner's court on East Cordova Street with other unsolved case files and there they remained for the next two and a half decades. Over the life of the investigation, police had filed away boxes of tips about a missing girl and boy, and 12 psychics had also offered assistance, including a Buddhist monk, who told police that the boy and girl were originally buried in the walls of his house. One of the strangest details to emerge over the years is a connection with serial child killer Clifford Olsen. As Kerry Gold, a Vancouver Sun reporter at the time, wrote in 2003, Olsen was seven at the time of the murders and living on Lulu Island in New Westminster. His mother was one of the tipsters who'd come forward after the bodies had been discovered. She told police that her neighbour's children had gone missing. The case stayed dormant until 1996, when the RCMP joined with various city police forces to form the Provincial Unsolved Homicide Unit. Detective Sergeant Brian Honeyburn, a veteran cop with 28 years on the force, was put in charge of five detectives and given the freedom to choose which cases he would reinvestigate.
1: I was one of the founding members of the Provincial Unsolved Homicide Unit, And that comprised of 16 RCMP officers and uh, uh, myself and four detectives from Vancouver. I was a detective sergeant. Now, as a detective sergeant, uh, I I wouldn't carry a caseload. I'd look after all the administrative functions for the unit and uh, assist. And particularly since I have a background in in surveillance, i had been a member of the strike force.
0: Honeyburn was born in New Westminster in 1947. He'd been raised on stories about the Babes in the Woods case by his parents and he was fascinated by the then 50-year-old murder case. He decided to order up the files from the archives, blow off the dust and take another look. The report from the initial investigation was just two pages long. In 1998, Honeyburn went to the Vancouver Police Museum and packed up all the bones and exhibits that were there on display. He discovered that the rest of the children's bones had been placed in a cardboard box in a police warehouse. Honeyburn, who had a budget that his predecessors could only have dreamed about, took the remains to Dr. David Sweet at the University of British Columbia. Dr. Sweet, an internationally renowned expert in forensic dentistry, had developed a process of extracting DNA from teeth, the last parts of the human body to decompose. At a cost of $10,000, Sweet extracted two teeth from the skulls, decontaminated them to remove the DNA of anyone else who might have handled the remains, froze them, and then pulverized the teeth to create a talcum-like powder to release DNA into a solution where it could be analyzed.
1: I took the remains out to the Bureau of Legal Dentistry where Dr. David Sweet, an odontologist who also was a friend of mine, uh, where him and I extracted some teeth from the skulls of the two little victims. So after that, um, I, uh, I had to go to Kelowna on another file, and my pager went off while well, I was in my hotel room, and it was David Sweet. He says, Brian, are you sitting down? And I says, he said, well, you should be, because they're not a boy and girl, they're two boys.
0: The results revealed the presence of X and Y chromosomes, proving the children were both male. Sweet's findings immediately lifted the suspicion from Quebec's Madeleine Fortier, who had a boy and a girl, and effectively tossed out nearly half a century of police work. Honeyburn believes that Mackay would have cracked the case decades ago if he'd known that skeletons belonged to two little boys.
1: The medical examiner at the time at the scene was convinced that it was a boy and girl. Mm. And the investigation focused on boy and girl. Uh, when I got the file and as time allowed, I would plow through it and go through it and, and it had deteriorated a lot and some of the investigation was good and some wasn't.
0: Like Don Mackay before him, Honeyburn believed that the boys were killed by their mother in a planned frenzied killing. There was nothing on the hands of the boys to indicate defensive wounds which was not surprising, says Honeyburn, given their young ages and the speed which the bludgeoning would have taken place. Honeyburn and Sweet were able to confirm that the hatchet, which had taken on such an ominous role in the murder and the media, was indeed the murder weapon. But while many pointed to its presence as evidence of premeditated murder, as Honeyburn points out, back in those days it wasn't unusual for people to carry hatchets in Stanley Park To cut up kindling for their wood stoves. A shingler's hatchet or leather axe was typically used when installing cedar shake roofs, and the buildings around Stanley Park were primarily cedar shingle and shake construction. Honeyburn also wasn't convinced about the date of the murders. When he re investigated the story of the West Vancouver woman who kept a diary and broke up with her fiance in the park, he found out that she'd lied. Honeyburn says he doesn't know why she lied. Perhaps it was a way of injecting herself into a story that was already getting so much attention, but all the information needed to make her story credible was found in the newspapers of the day, and her lie threw off the year of death. The original investigators had fixed on 1947 as the most likely year of death, largely because of the woman's report and a completely haphazard and unqualified examination of the crime scene. Today, Police would lock down a crime scene for days, trying to find and preserve every piece of evidence, take site surveys and photograph every inch of the scene. But back then, the forensic examination would have been a few black and white photos and a couple of cardboard boxes to hold the evidence. There was also no easy way to tell how badly the scene had been disturbed by the parks board staff in the area or even how much damage Tong had done when he stepped on and ultimately discovered one of the skulls. Another theory that had helped pinpoint the date was the boy's shoes. Police had originally thought that the shoes were imported from Asia only after World War II. Honeyburn discovered that the shoes were available in Vancouver prior to the war. It meant that the actual murders could have occurred years earlier. Armed with new information, Honeyburn's team went back through the case files, looking for tips referring to a missing set of boys. Searching back through the original case file, Honeyburn found a solid lead from a logger who said that he and a friend had picked up a red haired woman hitchhiking with two small boys who were wearing flying helmets near Mission in 1947. He'd driven them through Stanley Park, he said, and eventually dropped them off there. Because he'd reported a set of boys, his evidence was never investigated. Honeyburn tracked down the logger. The man by this time, aged 75, told him that the woman had a record for prostitution. She was concerned that social services was going to take away her children. Honeyburn found a local who remembered a woman who fit the description and said that she lived on Cherry Street in Mission, B.C. With the help of former CKNW radio reporter George Garrett, he eventually tracked her down, only to find that while she had died in Abbotsford, Her boys had grown up and were very much alive. Another theory that looked promising, says Honeyburn, involved a teacher named Lawrence Samuel Smith. Smith wrote to police in 1953 about something odd he saw in Stanley Park six years earlier. Smith, a biology teacher at a secondary school in Revelstoke, BC, wrote that he was collecting ocean specimens for his class. He told police that he remembered seeing a woman walking with two small children along the seawall towards Brockton Point in early January 1947. He says he noticed them because one of the children was banging on the pipe rail along the edge of the path with a hatchet. Later, Smith said, he walked around the park to some benches overlooking Beaver Lake where he found a hysterical woman sitting on a bench while a man paced back and forth. He said the woman had blood on her leg, was wearing only one shoe, and wasn't wearing a coat, even though it was quite cold. He says she told him that she'd fallen into a ditch, scraped her leg, and lost her shoe. After investigating the lead, Honeyburn found that Smith was in Stanley Park in 1951, not 1947, and the bones had been there years longer. Once Dr. Sweet had extracted the DNA from the children's teeth, Honeyburn decided he didn't want the children's bones on display at the Vancouver Police Museum. He felt it was disrespectful. And he did have a point, because at one time the exhibit with the children's skulls went on display at Vancouver's annual Pacific National Exhibition. Without the knowledge of his superiors, Honeyburn had the bones cremated.
1: And on my own authority, I seized the remains and the exhibit's and uh, I asked the curator at the time if he had any more of the children's remains. He went in the back and brought out a cardboard box with the skeletal remains all jumbled together. So after that, we kept biological samples of the children for future science. And uh, I took the rest of the remains to a crematorium. And the manager said that uh, he couldn't cremate the remains because there were two bodies together. Well, I explained the case to him, and uh, he was aware of it. It's quite a well-known case in Vancouver. So uh, he agreed to do it provide, and I never identify him or the crematorium, which I won't. Uh, when they had been cremated, I went and retained the remains, and I arranged for the Vancouver Police chaplain and the police boat to take them out uh, off Kitsilino Point, and we held a service, and I dedicated the remains to the ocean. Just by chance, not my planning. The Children's Festival was on at Kinsalino Point at that time, so I thought that was appropriate. I have been questioned why I didn't take them back to Stanley Park, and my answer to that is that's where they were murdered. Why would I take them back there? People have asked me why I uh, even bothered having them cremated. Because uh, the answer to that is that I didn't want them put on display. Again, I don't think that was appropriate. I wouldn't want my children put on display, would you?
0: No, but do you think, uh, you know, in hindsight, it should have gone to the coroner's office?
1: Coroner's office, I'm sure, knew what I was doing and had no interest in at all. Else they wouldn't have left the remains in the Vancouver Police Museum. If they were all that keen and interested, why did they leave them there?
0: Honeyburn left the police force in 2001. And just like Don Mackay before him, he's taken the babes in the woods with him into retirement. He's under no illusion that the killer will ever be found and brought to justice. He believes that it was their mother and that she's long dead. But he keeps several binders of material at his home to occasionally leaf through and look for new ideas. So what's your best lead now? Well, uh,
1: I still say it was in May of 1944. When a young sailor from Esquimalt and his fiancée were walking along the seawall, and a woman, what was the seawall then? A woman ran out of the bush uh, in front of them. She had no coat and one shoe, and she looked at them, and to quote, she let out a guttural sound and ran off. And that was in the vicinity where the bodies were found.
0: Another interesting lead came from a retired Vancouver policeman named Ron Emile. Emile, who was born in 1930, grew up in Vancouver and knew the family of the signalman at Prospect Point in Stanley Park. Harry Cox, the signalman, and his wife Isabella raised their three children, Harry, Donald, and Isabella, at the Stanley Park Lighthouse, and they lived there until Harry Cox's death in 1935. Harry's wife Isabella and a daughter left for England shortly after Harry's death, but returned to Vancouver early in 1940, perhaps because of the Second World War. When they got back, they moved in with Ron Emile's grandmother, who ran a boarding house in the West End. According to Emile, Isabella had two sons that were born overseas in 1937 and 1939. In 1940, Isabella married Robert Jensen in Vancouver. They had a son, but were divorced in 1944. Emile tells me that Isabella's other two sons went missing. When Emile took this information to a homicide detective with the Vancouver Police Department in 1980, he was told, thank you, but they were looking for a missing girl and a boy. Because, as you'll recall, it wasn't until Detective Sergeant Brian Honeyburn and Dr David Sweet ran the Babe in the Woods DNA in 1996 that they discovered that the two little skeletons were actually two boys, not a boy and a girl, as had been thought for almost 50 years. In 2015, and by then long retired, Ron Emil once again approached the Vancouver Police Department. This time, they took him seriously. The body of Isabella and Robert Jensen's son, a possible half-brother to the Babes in the Woods, had died in the 1970s. And in 2015, his body was exhumed and tested for microchondrial DNA.
1: If you're enjoying Cold Case Canada, why not buy Eve a coffee? Go to evelazarus.com.
0: Thanks so much for listening. In part two... I take a walk out to the spot where the skeletons of the Babes in the Woods were found with Kat Thorson. Kat was part of a volunteer task force looking into the murders. I also talked to the Vancouver police sergeant, who was in charge of the Babes in the Woods file in 2015, about the results of the exhumation and the investigative work that he did. And I talked to the coroner about a really interesting new forensic development in the case. If you'd like to join in the conversation about this and other murders, please check out my Facebook group page, Cold Case Canada. And for more information on my podcasts or books or my blog, it's all on my website at evelazarus.com.